Let's rock. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. That's right. You know, Seth, it's great that I can see you. I know. It's been a, it's been weird the last couple of times we recorded. You just yeah. did it with your eyes shut the entire time. Yeah, it was weird. No, for context listeners, um I didn't have a webcam for a bit. So the That's way true. Seth and I record is we like to set up webcams and we don't sh- show you guys this, but we see it. Which is weird because we're in the studio together. So I don't know why we set up the webcams. Well, we have the wall between us. Our studio is very small. So we have small rooms where sometimes we record in separate rooms and sometimes we record in the same room. But we're always recording. At least that's what producer Doug says. Uh, That is one of the things he says. He says, time is money, money is power. And I say, but we have neither. Do you know what I like? You know know my favorite thing about producer Doug is? That he's also our corporate counsel. Yes, that is nice. That is nice. Some people ask if he has a law degree. Uh, Anyway. uh... (laughs) Some people ask if he has a law degree and I ask them, what's it to you? Zach, what have you been playing recently? Seth, recently I've been playing Quake 2 RTX, uh, which was released in 2019 by Lightspeed Studios and NVIDIA. And it is basically just Quake 2, the game from 1997 developed by id Software, but with ray-traced graphics. And for those who don't know, ray-traced graphics are something I can't even really describe properly. It's just a new technique in graphical fidelity, using different lighting techniques and stuff to make games look more realistic. It's primarily done to the lighting to make the lighting look and behave more like actual light so it would actually reflect off of certain surfaces. Yeah, I, what I like about ray tracing real quick or that I think is interesting is that sometimes games use ray tracing to do mirror effects and other times they just model an entire same game in the other side of the <laughs> yes. wall. Yeah. In any case, Quake 2 RTX uh, takes Quake 2 and gives it a fresh coat of paint. And this, I mean, a ray-traced coat of paint. It's nice. It's nice looking. But in my opinion, I ask the question, does Quake 2 need ray tracing? And the answer to that is, well, it doesn't make the game worse, but I also don't think it makes the game better. It kind of just makes the game the same, but now it takes up a little more power on my computer. (laughs) It was worth trying out, so I have a graphics card that can do ray tracing now, and uh, I want to give it a shot and see what it was like and it's a free download if you own a copy of quake 2 so i said why not and uh yeah it was nice to try out it was cool to see what it could do uh but in all honesty if i want to play quake 2 probably just going to play normal quake 2 nice so seth what about you what have you been playing recently i've been playing a game called unheard it was developed and published by next studios and released in 2019 you play as a detective who's part of this new department called the acoustics detectives division or they're trying to start a department like that. The premise is that you listen through old audio logs 
games while looking at a tablet, okay. but the tablet becomes your full screen because it's a video game. And you essentially play in a top-down view of a building where you listen to one audio log that's like seven to eight minutes long and different people move around the building and you need to identify who those people are and you need to answer questions about said case, like where are the drugs hidden or who stole the painting by solely listening to people talk to each other and trying to pick up on clues. I really like detective games. I really like adventure games. Detective and adventure games tend to go well together. Um, So I thought this was a pretty cool game. Steam had a detective sale going on until, uh, if you're listening to this episode, it'll be going on for one additional day. It goes to February 27th and it's called Mystery Fest. So I bought a bunch of games that I've had on my wish list for uh, a discount because they were on sale. So, and one of them was unheard. And so I started playing through that. I also wanted to have a honorable mention for my recently played today. I've been recently playing through Mafia, the definitive edition on my Steam Deck, and I've been enjoying it. I've gotten much farther than I think I mentioned that I was playing it a while ago, but then I started playing it again on my Steam Deck, and I kind of churned through games while on my Steam Deck versus on my computer. It's pretty funny. So I was playing uh, Mafia on my Steam Deck, and I like the Definitive Edition. I think they did a good job remaking it, but all the voice actors changed, and it's really weird because nobody sounds the same, but they all look kind of the same, but they were remastered. Well, they were very blocky in the original Mafia, but they kind of look a little different, but they all have the same mannerisms. It's just like you're in like a bizarro world. If you, especially me, because I played, I beat Mafia, like I think the original Mafia, I think I beat like three times and it is a very good story. So playing the remake is like playing like bizarro Mafia, but it's fine. It's been good. So yeah, I did a two for today because I wanted to talk about Mafia, but I I think I already talked about Mafia and I didn't want to, I didn't want to take up my recently played with a game that I already talked about. So I talked about Unheard and I talked about Mafia. Yeah, that's my job to take up recently plays with games that I've already talked about. Wasn't there a game that you played like three games in a uh, three episodes in a row? I did Battlefront 2 twice in a row, but that's because I played a lot of Battlefront 2. Anyway, today we're not talking about Battlefront 2. We're not talking about Quake and we're not talking about Mafia or Unheard. Today we're doing an episode about a franchise that is uh, long overdue for a classic Gaming Brothers episode, I think. It is a staple of the DOS era and that game is... Duke Nukem 3D. Oh, I thought we were talking about Duke Nukem, not Duke Nukem 3D. Well, we're talking about Duke Nukem and Duke Nukem 3D. Oh, yeah. (laughs) To talk about Duke Nukem 3D, we have to talk about the original Duke Nukem games, which were, in fact, 2D. Uh, And the original Duke Nukem games came out in the 1990s and were developed by a company who was called Apogee. Now, Apogee was founded by Scott Miller. Uh, His father, Boyd Miller, was an engineer at NASA and worked on the Apollo and Gemini programs. Scott briefly lived in Australia, with his family, and in the 1970s, he wrote simple games on a Wang 2200 computer, um, and these games were pretty much just text adventures. His family later moved to Texas, and Scott began attending high school. In high school, he would start building more text adventure games on the school's Apple II. During this time, he would frequently hang out with a George Broussard, who would later go to work with him at Apogee. Scott graduated and spent some time working at the local amusement arcade. Uh, He saved up some of his money and began attending the University of Dallas, where he would drop out in his sophomore year, and he did this to focus on 
game development. Now, Scott had a growing interest in what was called Turbo Pascal, which was a language that was integrated with the IBM personal computers. And he used this knowledge to begin working on various small games that he would release for free. And he also wrote a book with George Broussard that was about how to beat various arcade games. And while this book is no longer really available, it did land him a job as a video game critic for the Dallas Morning News. He worked in that position for four years and used the money to buy a 16.5k modem that he installed at his parents' house. Then he quit his job. That's fun. I just feel like arguably he probably used his salary over that four years to do other things, but... (laughs) (laughs) It's just the idea that he's like, all right, bought the modem. Bye, guys. (laughs) But I feel like... The, the cost of the modem was four years of his salary. <laughs> now, Scott's earliest games were fairly simple using extended ASCII characters for graphics. He typically distributed his games for, via bulletin board systems as self-printing copies were too expensive. His earlier games were Beyond the Titanic and Supernova, which were text adventures and were released as shareware in 1986 and 1987. For these games, he received roughly $10,000 of donations from those who downloaded them, which is actually, I would say, pretty good for back in the 80s for uh, essentially a hobby. Yeah, for a college dropout living at his parents' house, uh, it was probably any money was good money. Yeah, and like shareware and bulletin board distribution and mailing stuff to people's houses to get uh, games out. That's like, that's a thing. And that's a thing that was happening during this time. Um, We've talked about it before in other episodes. I think even when we talked about ZZT, we talked about Code Red and how Code Red was uh, was like, you had to mail letter requesting and the floppy disk would arrive. The next game that he worked on was uh, Kingdom of Kras and proved to be a much more larger game to be giving away for free. Uh, so for Kras, what Scott would end up doing would be adopting what he would call the Apogee model. This consisted of uploading a portion of the game as shareware to a BBS, and at the end of the demo, that shareware version, there would be a mailing address which would be provided and people could request additional copies of the game. So he would go on to break Kraz into three parts, Kingdom, Caverns, and Dungeons. And he shared Kingdoms to the BBS. And he sold the Caverns and Dungeons as additional episodes. Really, like, ahead of his time there, this is like Telltale Studios type of (laughs) way of selling games. This would also become the way that Games were distributed in later yeah. years. Doom would be distributed this way. Uh, ZZT, Wolfenstein. A lot of games adopted this model. It was really kind of the, the model that rightfully was called the Apogee model because Apogee did it first. Because he started doing this, he needed a name for this small company to be more professional when releasing games this way. And so he came up with uh, Apogee Software Productions. Something that's cool about this method of you just write to this mailing address. This mailing address was was Scott Miller's parents' house. So at the end of these shareware games, he had his parents' house, their address, literally just there. In later years, Scott would move out of his parents' house, but that address was always kept as a forwarding address because he would honor the uh, mail-ins for people that requested copies of the game and other games that he would release in this episodic manner to the point where his parents later moved out of that address and they had a forwarding rule put in place so that any letters that come to the house would get forwarded to Scott to make sure that he would honor the games that still had that episodic release. 
in hindsight, he probably was like, I should have just put a P.O. box in there. And he could have put like Apogee software and then put the address of his parents' house. It's not like Google Maps was a thing. People weren't just able to look up where this building was and, and know like, oh, that's a personal house. Kingdom of Kraz and the Kraz series would go on to be extremely successful for Scott, where it's estimated that he made somewhere around eighty to $100,000 in total. And that's like 80s money. So that's really good money, especially once again, for kind of a hobby that is now blossoming into a a real job and he it was reported that he was getting between 100 to 500 dollars a day for cross uh scott would go on and hire his friend george bruchard to merge bruchard's company micro fx into apogee apogee would go on to create many games to the 1980s and early 1990s such as pharaoh's tomb some sequels to kingdom of cross like super cross trilogy and the lost adventure of cross they also got into the business of publishing games and published commander keen invasion of the vorticons from id software now the original duke nukem was released in 1991 per some sources the game was partially developed with the help of id software's john carmack who assisted one of the designers with some low-level assembly code. In Duke Nukem, you play as the titular Duke Nukem, as you go around blasting aliens and defeating the evil Dr. Photon. The game was originally called Heavy Metal, but Scott Miller reportedly hated the name, uh, and he decided that the name should have a connection to the lead character, kind of like a superhero or like a comic book. And he proposed the name Duke. He thought it was a good, strong name. And the programmer, Todd Rapulgi, proposed the last name, Nukem. This would be the perfect pairing of names ever if it wasn't for the fact that it almost potentially could have gotten them in trouble out of fear they actually released the game as a different spelling for one of the uh, later releases they called it duke nukum spelled n-u-k-u-m due to fears that apogee would be sued by the creators of captain planet in the planet tears which featured a character by the name of duke Nukem. If anyone is uh, fans or vaguely remembers Captain Planet, Duke Nukem from Captain Planet was the yellow guy. He looked like a little, like a yellow clay face. He does kind of look like yellow clay face, yeah. <laughs> um, with, a, with like a mohawk and he wears a Hawaiian shirt and he's yellow because of radiation. Apogee would find out that the name Duke Nukem was actually never registered as a trademark, so they trademarked it and adopted it for the later sequels. They did, however, receive a legal letter from duke university telling them to cease and desist on using the duke name apogee was actually able to successfully fight duke university and they would go on to keep the name duke nukem now the original duke nukem sold about 60 to 70 000 copies and it would receive a sequel called Duke Nukem 2 in 1993. The sequel began development in 1991, but it took the team just about two years to create. They also updated the game to use VGA and EGA graphics, um, which allowed the game to have a bit more robust colors. Now, sometime around the release of Duke Nukem 2, a programmer by the name of Ken Silverman was working on a new 3D engine. His earliest demo, Walkin, which I really hope was where you played as Christopher Walken, was sent around to some companies for their review. This version was primarily a tech demo and was limited on features. He would go on to modify Walken and would release a freeware game through the publisher Epic Mega Games called Ken's Labyrinth. Uh, this version had an added money system, music, and interactivity between objects like slot machines, water fountains, and other items. One of the companies that Ken submitted the game to was Apogee Software 
software. And look at this. Scott has gone on from making games in his parents' house to being a company that gets solicited by other people, other people making games in their parents' houses. They actually turned down Ken Silverman's initial proposal. They said that it was very impressive, but they wanted to see it do more. The engine that Ken created for Ken's Labyrinth would eventually become what we know as the build engine, which was a 2.5D first-person engine. You know it's 2.5D because it's like the window maze uh, screensaver. You, it's a 3D environment, but it's a little flat. <laughs> the engine has some similarities to the Doom engine and arguably could be mistaken for a modified version of the Doom engine at first glance. The build engine was a bit more complex, however. For one thing, it had the ability to have vectors of the level manipulated in real time, such as shape, height, and slope. This allowed for games to have destructible environments, which, historically, Doom didn't have. Uh, you could shoot whatever you want in Doom. It wasn't going to break. Uh, Duke Nukem, however, that was a different story. You could also overlap sectors, which allowed things like, for example, air ducts to extend across one room to another, an effect that was also impossible on other engines, including, I believe, the Doom engine, which the Doom engine, um, for all intents and purposes, was one flat plane that just felt like it was going up but was really just this long, complicated level where uh, the Duke Nukem, the build engine, you could overlap areas, which made it more, I would say, arguably more 3D. Yeah, so what happens in the Doom engine if you try to overlap sectors is it creates what's called the like mirror effect, where basically the game will repeat its screen infinitely. It actually happens if you accidentally no-clip, or purposely no-clip through a part, and it's like, it looks like the map is extending a million times yes, into the yep. background. So that's caused by overlapping sectors of the engine. The engine just doesn't know how to render the two sectors at once, whereas in the build engine, you could have overlapping sectors to a degree. Uh, there were, however, some limitations, such as the way the level geometry behaved, but some of this could be intentionally manipulated to make it appear that rooms were stacked on each other, when in reality the player may be moved to a different sector of the game seamlessly. The first two games to officially use the build engine were Witchhaven and William Shatner's Tech War. Arguably, the best game to use it was Duke Nukem 3D. Duke Nukem 3D began development with a budget of $300,000 and a team of eight people, growing to about 12 to 13 by the end of its creation. Scott Miller wanted the game to feel more realistic than other shooters, and wanted to include things like cinemas, strip clubs, and bookstores, and police stations, as opposed to the more fantasy or sci-fi settings. But Duke Nukem does contain plenty of fantasy and sci-fi settings as well. Don't assume that the game is all grounded in realism. The game would also not be developed by Apogee, or rather, it was developed by Apogee, but Apogee had changed their name. You see, in 1994, Apogee created two brand names, 3D Realms for 3D games and Pinball Wizards, which is a stupid brand name, but I love it. So the, the plan was that Apogee was going to use 3D Realms to bundle any 3D games they made, Pinball Wizards to bundle any like pinball or probably other type of like more arcadey games, and they would still publish games as Apogee when they created things like platformers. However, people were less interested in platformers for the PC. They were starting to get into 
3D shooters, and 3D games. So Apogee opted to simply rebrand themselves completely as 3D Realms. And they only ended up using the brand Pinball Wizards for one release, Balls of Steel. Duke Nukem 3D uh, would be fairly complex for the time, featuring a character who frequently made one-liners, voiced by John St. John, and also featured a multitude of weapons with different functionalities, like a shrink ray or a freeze ray, and also an abundance of items that could be equipped and used by the player, such as steroids, which made you a little faster, night vision goggles, a jetpack, and a holographic version of Duke to distract enemies. It was really a kind of an item abundant game, which I think uh, is something Doom lacks. There are guns in Doom, but you can't really collect like an add-on which will just like allow you to like fly across the level. The plot of Duke Nukem is set in the 21st century, where Duke must fight some aliens that have invaded the Earth. That's pretty much it. The game is a direct sequel to Duke Nukem 2, uh, which ends with Duke leaving to return to Earth. In Duke Nukem 3D, you are returning to Earth in your spaceship when you're ambushed by aliens and shot down. This starts Duke's first moments where he says, Damn, those alien bastards are gonna pay for shooting up my ride. From here, Duke must now make his way through the levels while making tons of references to aliens, Dirty Harry, Evil Dead 2, Full Metal Jacket, Jaws, Pulp Fiction, and probably most famously, they live with a line that I think a lot of people credit to Duke now. It's time to kick ass and chew bubble gum. And I'm all out of gum. Actually coming directly from a line spoken by Roddy Piper in the movie They Live. I have come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubble gum. Also, there are references to other video games and Doom. Uh, at one point, if you go into a secret part of a map, you will find a dead space marine lying on the ground, uh, bleeding from the neck, and Duke will say, That's one doomed space marine. That's fun. I've played bits and pieces of Duke Nukem. I primarily have played Doom and Wolfenstein, but like, and I would probably say out of like the three, I would say the three shooter dudes, right? Doom guy, Wolfenstein, and or Blasowich, and Duke Nukem. I would say I probably fall in the Blasowit BJ Blasowitz camp and have played mostly Wolfenstein games. Like I'm mm, pretty much yeah. have played almost all of the Wolfenstein games. Um and have beaten um most of them. Doom would probably be my second one. I've played most of the Doom games and have beaten I think one of them. I think the original Doom is the only Doom that I've actually beaten. And then finally Duke Nukem. I don't know how much I've played of Duke Nukem. So how did uh how did Duke Nukem do, Seth? Duke Nukem 3D sold very well. It reached about 3.5 million copies in its lifetime and in the u.s became one of the 12th best-selling game from 1993 to 1999 the game was also very well received with the pc version getting five stars from maximum four stars from next generation and 8.8 .8 stars out of 10 from GameSpot. The game did, however, have some controversy. For one thing, one of the levels features you going through a strip club, and you can tip the dancers. And as you know, in America, we don't like tips. <laughs> <laughs> 
well, also when you tip the dancers, sometimes they will reveal parts of their body. Not fully nude. Also, at some point in time in the game, you go into a porn theater where there is videos going on. Now, the controversy would go on to lead to a censored version of the game being released in some countries and a censored version exclusively carried by Walmart in the United States because Walmart does not like porn theaters nor tipping dancers. Also, I would credit this section of the game to why I didn't play Duke Nukem. In Australia, the game almost didn't receive classification and 3D Realms had to repackage the game with a parental lock functionality, though they offered a patch on their website to fix it. In Germany, it was banned from being advertised, but it was still available to be purchased. Scott Miller would later indicate that 3D Realms never really saw any direct negative feedback and felt that the M rating was more than appropriate enough, considering the game lacked real nudity. In terms of legacy, Duke Nukem 3D was basically ported to every single video game system under the sun. Uh, It also featured a lot of different versions, add-ons, and unofficial map packs, very similar to Doom. The original version of the game was released as shareware in January of 1996, and a full version in May of 1996. The full version also contained both Duke Nukem and Duke Nukem 2 as bonus material. The Atomic Edition was released in 1996 and contained all three episodes and a fourth new episode. An update called the Plutonium Pack was also released that allowed players to upgrade their original release to the Atomic Edition. The Atomic Edition also contained some reworks in the game's code to allow it to be easier to mod. It also added new enemies, a new boss, and a new weapon called the Expander. A Macintosh version of the game was released in 1997. Various other versions would come out through the late 90s to the modern era. The most recent version of the game is the 20th Anniversary World Tour, developed by Nerve Software and Gearbox Software in 2016. This version features re-recorded voice lines, new music, a new episode, new enemies, and new lighting effects. There was also a version of the game released for the Sega Saturn, PlayStation 1 called Duke Nukem Total Meltdown, N64 called Duke Nukem 64, Xbox 360, iPhone, Nokia, N900, and a port created for the Sega Genesis by a Brazilian company called Tectoy. There were also various spin-offs. A majority of them changed the gameplay style though. There were multiple third-person shooters called called Duke Nukem Time to Kill, developed by N-Space, Duke Nukem Zero Hour, developed by Eurocom, and a third shooter called Duke Nukem Land of the Babes by N-Space. Their series also briefly returned to its platformer roots with Duke Nukem The Manhattan Project, released for the PC by Sunstorm. There's also a GBA game called Duke Nukem Advance, which has an original storyline and original levels, so it's not really a port. Now, a sequel for the game was announced in 1997 called Duke Nukem Forever. Duke Nukem Forever would release in 2011, 15 years after its announcement and 15 years of development hell, going from studio to studio to studio. 3D Realms would shut down during development of Duke Nukem Forever. They came back, they're actually kind of back now, but they would shut down initially during development of Duke Nukem Forever. And I think one of the other companies that took over shut down during production of Duke Nukem Forever. It was development hell in every uh, sense of the word, and honestly, probably wasn't worth the wait. Duke Nukem Forever is on promotion until the March 2nd, where you can pick it up 
for four ninety nine. Its MSRP is nineteen ninety nine. A Duke Nukem Forever, I think, is one of those things that we could probably dedicate a whole episode to just talking about the development of Duke Nukem Forever. It's fifteen years of information that's pretty well documented because they kept releasing trailers for that game and fifty four on Metacritic and mixed reviews on Steam. <laughs> Yeah, again, I don't think it was worth the wait. I feel like if it came out in 2000, it would be like a really good. Arguably, the version of Duke Nukem Forever that we got probably would have sold really well back in 2000. And it still has 2000-like humor. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's going to be our duke nukem episode uh maybe i'll check it out now that i've talked about it I, if you haven't played duke nukem I, I recommend it it's kind of that it's definitely got a sense of humor and a sense about it that is very dated especially with how duke talks about women so if that's something that might make you uncomfortable or just something you're not a fan of maybe pass on it but if you uh are just kind of looking for a kind of mindless game yeah check it out anyway right now we're going to get into our retro rewind where we talk about games that we gave each other last week. Last week, Seth had me play XCOM Interceptor, uh, which is not XCOM Enforcer. XCOM Interceptor uh, is the fourth game of the XCOM series, developed and published by Microprose, and it's a uh, strategy slash space flight slash business simulation game <laughs> yeah. uh, where you command various XCOM bases and monitor for alien life by probing alien planets. And sometimes probing aliens. <laughs> sometimes probing aliens yeah you just you pretty much do this and you have to monitor your resources monitor uh you know expenditures and other business type of stuff like that at some point in the game aliens will sometimes enter into your space and you go no <laughs> and you send your interceptors after them sometimes i'm not even sure if the aliens are coming to attack me i'm just like you're not allowed here and i send my interceptors after them uh from that point you are put into a, a combat sequence where you get to fly one of the interceptors and you get to blow up aliens which is the only way that XCOM knows how to do things. The end game of that game is using the Nova Bomb, which is the silliest weapon in any sort of game. The Nova Bomb is a bomb that you shoot into a sun and then it explodes and you wipe out a galaxy because if you can't have, if they are coming in, might as well just take them all out. That's just the XCOM way. <laughs> it's, yeah, XCOM, XCOM is all about just killing them. Uh, the thing I like about XCOM is I feel like they're very much a team of people who shoot first and ask questions a few days later. The thing about, I like about XCOM, I always feel that the people who are running XCOM don't even know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're just like, if a bunch of random people were just giving a pile of government funding and they're like, you need to fight the aliens. Like in the original XCOM game, and I'm talking about the 90s Microprose, UFO Defense, and Terror from the Deep. In those original 90s XCOM games, it's heavy on the business strategy and budget management. And you just like recruit random mercenaries. <laughs> and if they die, you just recruit more random mercenaries. It's just a very, in, it's a tough game. And Interceptor still plays into that roots with a little bit of space combat. I tried playing OG XCOM a while ago and I was like, God, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> just for the first couple of minutes in the menu, I was like, I'm so confused. There is open XCOM. So if you're interested in playing 
OG XCOM, like the original XCOM, and I believe Terra from the Deep, there is a thing called Open XCOM, which allows you to play it in like modern game systems. Uh, you still need a copy of the original game, but um, I mean, it's out there. And it's also, I, Steam also allows you to, it, Steam has like a, an emulator that you can play it through as well. So you can play the original XCOM on Steam. But uh, Open XCOM was, I really like Open XCOM personally. And I think you can get multiplayer through Open XCOM, but. Oh, maybe we should do Open XCOM multiplayer. I think, I don't know if you can. We're still going to play, uh, Zach and I um, are going to play XCOM email. Just talking about XCOM for a little bit, and then I'll talk about my... Re- oh, Zach can assign me my Retro Rewind. There is a game that was called... Was it Email XCOM? Yeah, it was called Email Games XCOM. <laughs> yeah, Email Games XCOM, which was uh, originally done by Hasbro. And when Hasbro... I think we talked about this in our original yeah. XCOM episode. When Hasbro shuttered their studios, they shut down the XCOM servers so people couldn't play it. The game errors because the emails that you see send in the game go to the Hasbro servers. Well, there have been people out there very concerned about this game and they have fixed it to either be played by sending a file to somebody or through Discord. So Zach and I are going to spend a night and we're going to figure out how we get everything situated and then we're going to play by post some XCOM games. So anyway, I thought the combat portions of Interceptor were fun. I thought that the strategy portions were clunky, but also fun. Uh, I think some parts of, I think XCOM, I think games of a certain era are naturally clunky, which is why I like them. Uh, I think XCOM has a particular nostalgic clunk to it. Even though I didn't, I don't remember you playing Interceptor when I was younger. I still feel like I'm playing XCOM in the, in the strategy portions. It just feels like XCOM in that part, especially with like the map and stuff that you have. And we have your base that you have to manage. Yeah, you have the base that you manage and I think a lot of the sound effects are the same and stuff for like the menu items. I would, I think this is the first time that XCOM soldiers have voices and then Enforcer would be the second time and that's a tragedy. But anyway, Seth, next week you're not going to play XCOM despite how much you would probably want to. Next week you can play Scoob Adventure the search for pirate's treasure for ms-dos by apogee software fun i also played a vaguely apogee game for my retro rewind zach had me play kingdom of Kraz. it's a uh roguelike game that was created by scott miller who was the same scott miller that we talked about throughout this entire episode and we even mentioned kingdom of Kraz at some point in time in this episode it sold very well in the 80s um he published Kraz in 1987 and it was inspired by the dungeon crawling game rogue and kingdom is the first of a trilogy kingdom caverns and dungeon the game is pretty tough it has ascii graphics as we we mentioned so you play as a little face dude blocky person that moves up and down you gotta collect gems and you get a whip and you can teleport but you have to find teleporting powers you start off at you have to it's so in kingdom of cross you have to get to the bottom level and the deeper you go the more points you get and every level is just besieged by bad guys and they all move very slowly but there's a lot of them and if you hit them you lose gems and you, you find gems, you can get more of your hit points, essentially. I got to the third level um, when I played, and it was uh, definitely tough. 
eventually the concept of Kingdom of Cross and the text mode that really runs the game uh, would go on to be cloned by uh, Potomac computer systems and turned into ZZT. Because I opened it up and I said, this reminds me a lot of ZZT. And Zach said, no, ZZT reminds you a lot of Kingdom of Cross. Potomac would actually go on to become Epic Games, who would eventually get involved with Tencent, who published Unheard. So does Kingdom of Cross hold up in today's standard? I don't know. Uh, it doesn't. It's definitely like a time capsule of a game. So if you want to feel what it's like to play computer games back in 1987, you can give Kingdom of Cross a check. I think it would have been awesome back in 1987. Um, and it's definitely because it was it, because of the ASCII characters. And um, if you had a good imagination, it could be a lot of fun. But uh, I I think that there's probably better roguelikes out there if you want to play a roguelike. Next week, Zach can play Outrun for uh, the Sega. Nice. Will do. Sega Genesis? Sure. Or Sega Arcade if you really want. Uh, another fun thing real quick is that uh, Potomac Games would become Epic. But before they became Epic, they were Epic Mega Games, who published Ken's Labyrinth. Yes. Yes. Full they're circle. All, they're, all, they're all a little connected. Also, don't forget that uh, we will be at PAX towards the end of March, whenever PAX East is happening. Uh, this actually, this weekend, while listening to this episode, this is the episode you can listen to us while we attend the uh, the Boston Area Retro Show. And if you want to listen to us while you're not at the Rockland Retro Area uh, Retro Show, you could Retro Retro. I, I don't even know what I said back then. If you want to listen to this episode while you're not with us, you can go and find it wherever podcasts are available to listen to uh you can also if you want to reach out to us you can send us an email at classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com you can also follow us on social media as our facebook instagram and twitch are all at classic gaming brothers and our twitter is cg brothers pod we always appreciate when fans like us review us and subscribe to us so do all those things and we'll think positively of you when we go to sleep and finally i think that's everything zach did i miss anything don't play games like my brother and don't play games like my brother uh I've been Zach. And I've been Seth. And we've been the classic gaming brothers. That's, That's right. right.